Have you ever thought just how incredible it is that God calls us by His name? I, he calls us by His name. There was a, a week ago, I was at school and um, basketball game for the boys, and we have a new acting principal because our principal is, is recovering um, from some health issues. And, and she, she said, oh, oh, are, are you the Johnson boys' dad? I had a decision to make at that point. And I'm thinking, and, and I'm looking around on the basketball court, okay, what have they done? What, um, because I can either say, yeah, I'm Mark and Jeffrey's dad, or I could say, um, their mother's over there. (laughs) And this is my precious daughter. (laughs) You never know, right? And, and uh, fortunately they hadn't done anything wrong and they were, she just saw them on the basketball team and it was sort of fun to see them playing together, but it's, it's interesting to think of how names reflect something about us and our, our family name reflects on the family. At another basketball game this week, we saw a dad in the stands and the whole game, just over the whole gym, he's yelling at his son, do this, do this, no, you didn't do this, you didn't do this. And, and I was embarrassed. And, and I'm not even his, his son. But there was something about that desire for his son to represent him well, or maybe to live vicariously through him. I don't know. But, um, and, and so there's something to that. And so when we come to God's word and we think we represent God as believers, as sons and daughters of God, we are called by his name and we represent him. And that's a scary thing. And that, that's an amazing thing at the same time, because sometimes we don't represent well. Sometimes the testimony we give others is not a good testimony of who God is. And God in His righteousness and God in His glory has to address that. And He will address that. But this morning I want to think a different perspective on the same question. What does it say about God and His glory that He can take a group of rebellious sinners and turn them into His children? Now, isn't that a whole different way of looking at the the question? That he can take people that have rebelled against God, that are in sin against their Creator, that cannot come to Him on His own, and he can rescue them, and he can come and offer salvation, and pay for their sins, and offer forgiveness for sins. Oh, the glory of God. And I would argue that with Isaiah today, that that paints a beautiful, beautiful picture of the glory of God. Now, to understand that, we have to understand just how utterly unable we are to rescue ourselves, right? If you're watching a movie and, and, you know, a lot of the movies have your, your plot and something happens and someone needs to be saved or rescued. Now, is the movie better or, or is the rescuer considered better if the person they're rescuing could have saved themselves? Or is the rescue and and the rescuer, there's just all the more glory if the storm's coming and the waves are crashing and there's no way anyone can live through this and they still somehow rescue them? Do you see how this contributes to the glory of God? Today I hope we marvel at the glory of God as we study Isaiah 48. As we see that yes, His glory will discipline His own for misrepresenting Him, but His glory offers redemption. And offers forgiveness. 
God protects His glory in discipline. He shows His glory in redemption. And that's where we're going today. We're in Isaiah 48. So if you grab your Bible or your app, turn with me to Isaiah 48. If you don't have a Bible, there's a black one under a chair somewhere real close to you. Um, And if you don't own one, please take that home as our gift to you. Because we want you to own God's Word, the, the best book ever written. The most important book you'll ever read. We're in Isaiah chapter 48, and, and just to give some background, and we, we really have been trying to give you a lot of the historical background as we study Isaiah. It's so essential to understanding Isaiah. In chapters 1 through 39, if you remember, we called those the Trust Chronicles. And that had to do with when Assyria was coming and they took out the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And, and there was so much there that was judgment and saying, get straight or else you're going to go into captivity. They didn't. And so we know from history that Babylon came and eventually took them into captivity. And God had predicted that captivity would last 70 years. And that's exactly how long it lasted because God knows what he's talking about. And so now in chapters 40 to 48, we've had what I would call the Babylon Chronicles. And and they're all written to a people, and it's written 150 years ahead of time, but written to a people in exile in Babylon. And God is writing more for comfort. If you look at Isaiah 40, he starts with, "I'm, I'm, I'm trying to comfort my people. I know that you're hurting. You've been under my discipline for 70 years, but all is not lost because God will still redeem for his glory. He has not forgotten His children. And then in these nine chapters, we've been able to see comfort. We've been able to see instruction and concern for their their take on idolatry and the idols of Babylon and whether they're buying into that. And we come to Isaiah 48, which is really the end of of talking about Babylon in the book and this section. And and at the end of this, in, in Isaiah 48, he's summarizing chapters 40 to 47. So, so throughout the chapter as we read it, and I encourage you to read this on your own, you're going to look at things and say, oh, wow, that was in chapter 40. Oh, wow, that was in 42. Or that was in 46. Or that's, that's just a wonderful way to know that God's Word comes together as one unified whole. But picture the setting here. And from, from all study, it really looks like this is intended. Again, it's written 150 years ahead of time, but it's intended for people as they need it. And it looks like this is right after Babylon falls to the Medo-Persian Empire. Okay, And, and last week we, we still saw that that was predicted. And God had said, in one night that will happen, right? Or in one day that will happen. I will deliver my people. And, and this is the, the Medo-Persian Empire. That's Cyrus, King Cyrus, coming with his armies. And we know from Daniel chapter 5 that in fact, in one night Babylon fell. While King Belshazzar was having a feast and saying, no one will ever take us down, outside Cyrus was diverting the Euphrates River and marching his army under the wall and taking the city without a fight in one night. And that is the man that would then free Israel and allow them to return to their homeland. An incredible story of how God was using a pagan king because all authority is in his hand. He's not surprised at anything that happens. And he used this pagan king to come and destroy Babylon and allow his people to go home. Redemption. I guess you're already at Isaiah. I'll read Ezra. I was going to have you turn to Ezra. Um, Ezra 1 records this. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, 
that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, Yahweh stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, Yahweh, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah and rebuild the house of Yahweh, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold and with goods and beasts, besides free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. So picture all this happening right before Isaiah 48, right before the, the people are reading that. I know it was written ahead of time. And what we see is Cyrus, he comes in, takes over Babylon, and for whatever reason says, I'm going to send you back to your home. I think you need to rebuild your temple. And in fact, I'm going to tell everyone around you to give you all kinds of money and stuff to help you do it. Isn't that incredible? What an incredible redemption and salvation to the people. And so Isaiah 48 is written specifically to those people that are now contemplating, do I go back or not? Do I obey God and go back? Life in Babylon, I've gotten sort of used to it. It's pretty good. I have a well like 100 feet from my house. This is awesome. And and you can see where we settle down and we get used to life and we're like, oh, the idols, I can ignore them. They're not so bad. And they hesitated. And it looks like there was some wonder, should we go back? And God is saying, I redeemed you. This is for my glory. This is what I promised. And so as we study Isaiah 48, keep this history in mind. The other thing I want to keep in mind is God is dealing on both the micro and the macro, the, the, the current situation for them and the big situation of what he's doing in all of history. And in the current situation, he is rescuing them from from exile through Cyrus. But he's going to use that to illustrate, I'm trying to save the world through my Messiah, through Jesus Christ. That's the bigger plan here. And so he uses one to illustrate the other. We're going to break Isaiah 48 into a couple different, uh, or in two different sections again. We're going to look at 1 through, through 11, and then 12 through the end of the chapter. And really, though, it's one poem. And if, if we follow it through, the first half of the poem is, is really dealing with why does God save us? What, what have we done to deserve it? And that's a good question, isn't it? You know, why did God choose you for salvation? Why did he pursue you? Well, it's because he really needed me. He, he, knew that, he knew that I would be really good for the kingdom of God. He knew that the kingdom of God might fall apart without Chris. And so he had to choose Chris and he had to choose Andy because isn't that sort of ridiculous? Does God have to choose any of us? No. But as long as we have this mindset that I somehow deserve it, I've somehow earned it, that God, I'm doing God a favor by being a Christian, then we are detracting from the glory of God because it's not about him anymore. It's about me. And we see things through the lens of me. This is the idolatry we talked about last week. We see everything through the lens of me. And so this first half of the chapter, Isaiah is going to tear that down and basically say, it's not about you. Get over it. 
And that's going to shine on God's glory all the more. And so he's not being mean here. He's actually revealing God's glory. So let's break this this first half down. Why does God save? Look at verses 1 and 2. Hear this, O house of Jacob. We're going to stop there. I know, we got six words in. (laughs) Actually, look at verse 1. Hear. This is... um, The idea of hearing is more than just verbally, consciously knowing somebody said something. Hearing in the Old Testament always has this idea of hearing and doing or listening and doing. Because how do you know when your child has really listened to you? When they do it. If they're still just watching TV like this and haven't even acknowledged you, they haven't listened. Yeah, they may have heard, but they haven't listened. What do you, you, moms, dads, you want action, right? And then you, you proceed through the steps to gain that action, and it's, it's all kinds of fun. Um, that's the word that God is using here. Hear this, O house of Jacob. In fact, ten times in this one chapter, he's going to hear this word. That's why I'm focusing on it. He's going to say this over and over and over. Again, conclusion of life in Babylon. He's trying to get them to give glory to God and obey Him and go back to the land. And so this is, listen to this and go do it. Hear this, O house of Jacob, who are called by the name of Israel and who came from the waters of Judah, who swear by the name of the Lord and confess the God of Israel. Now, so far it sounds really, really nice, right? Hear this, you people. You're, you're, you're calling yourselves Israel. You're calling yourselves people of God. You're saying, oh yeah, our homeland's Judah. You, you swear by the name of Yahweh. You even say that God is, is God. You are so righteous and holy. And then the next phrase. But not in truth or right. But not in truth or right. And Isaiah starts by calling him out and basically saying, you're talking the talk, but you're not walking the walk. You're saying you love God, but you don't. You're not actually, truly following Him. He goes on in verse 2, For they call themselves after the holy city. Yes, we're Jerusalemites. And stay themselves on the God of Israel. Yahweh of hosts is His name. And He starts by reminding them that they have been fake in their walk with God. Israel was fake in their walk with God. One other thought as we study through this. It is so easy to say, man, that Israel... They are just stupid. We would never do anything like that. We would never go to church every week and say we're Christians and then not walk with God during the week. Never. We would never say that our devotion is to God, but we blow the dust off our Bible every Sunday so nobody notices it hasn't been opened. We would never. And I say that because As we study through Israel, our first thought shouldn't be, how could they? Our first thought should be, that's me. That's me too. But for the grace of God, but for His glory and holiness, that's what I'd be doing. And so he's challenging them. You have the pedigree. You talk the talk. But you're not living it. You're living in hypocrisy. We're going to see this in verse 4. We're going to see this in verse 8. There's no match between their words an appearance or reality. It's just not a match. And really when we come to 
to understanding God's redemption, when we understand our need for salvation, this is where we have to start. We have to say, yeah, that's me. I'm a sinner. I do not deserve salvation. And so Israel was faking their walk with God, but it reminds us we don't deserve God's redemption. I will never be good enough. I will never be righteous enough because there is none righteous, no, not one. Saying it doesn't make it true. Being here doesn't make you a Christian. We have a new gym. I could stand up there and say, you know what, I'm an athlete. That's not the funny part yet. (laughs) Okay, maybe. I'm an athlete. I I can take any of you on in basketball. Uh, Any of you. Barry, you know. And and I could even say, you know, in in junior high, I played basketball. (laughs) That just sounds funny. Saying it does nothing, right? How do I prove that? Go out and do it, right? That's what he means in verse 1 when he says, not in truth or right. You're saying it, but you're not doing it. The truth is we all fail. None of us deserve God's salvation. And that's the first step in understanding how glorious salvation is, is I can't save myself. I need a Savior. He goes on in in verses 3 through the first part of 6. And in the the blanks in your notes, they stubbornly struggled to recognize God's hand and give Him glory for what He had done. They stubbornly struggled to recognize God's hand and give Him glory for what He had done. The former things, in verse 3, and this is God speaking, the former things I declared of old. They went out from my mouth and I announced them. Then suddenly I did them and they came to pass. There's all kinds of discussion about what the former things are here and the new things in the, the end of verse 6. Really, if we look at the context in, in verses, chapters 40 to 48, I think, I think the best solution here is that the former things are all that he's been saying about Cyrus, all that he's been saying about redemption from Babylon. As they're sitting there in exile in Babylon or Nevada maybe for us, and, and they're, they're just rotting away, He's been saying, I'm going to send Cyrus. I'm going to save you. And so he's been declaring this. They went out and I announced them. And suddenly I did them, referring to the overthrow of Babylon. And they came to pass. But then verse 4, Because I know that you are, an obst- that you are obstinate and your neck is an iron sinew and your forehead brass. Because of that, I declared them to you from old. Before they came to pass, I announced them to you, lest you should say, huh, my idol did them. My, my bear out of wood, he saved us. My carved image and my metal image commanded them. You have heard, now see all this. And will you not declare it? And what you see is a, a sequence here where God is saying, I told you this. I told you ahead of time I would do it. I did it so I could prove that it was me that was doing it and that you'd declare my praises, that you would declare my glory. But you're stubborn and you won't do it. In verse 4, I know that you're obstinate. The imagery of neck is an iron sinew. He's not saying they're powerful and strong. He's saying they're they're thick-headed, basically. They don't get it. They're, They're just... Your forehead brass, 
It's this stubbornness that they won't submit. They won't acknowledge God. It's a self-confidence that said, we did this, or at least our idols did this. And so we see a people of God that not only couldn't save themselves, they didn't deserve salvation, but now they, they didn't even have a part in it. Their image, idols didn't have a part in it. They didn't earn it. And so for us, we can't earn salvation, and neither can anything else. We can't earn it. For them, maybe the temptation was to trust their idols. For us, imagine if, if we had a list of things you could do to be saved. If you go to church four times uh, a month, and, and if you give this much, and if you serve this many hours a week, like our community service forms, and then you sign it at the bottom and say, Ha, oh, you're a Christian, you're saved. What would we do? We'd be comparing that with each other. We'd be saying, I earned this. So our idols aren't wood. Our idols are self and our brains and our education and our actions. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't obey God and He's going to get there at the end of the chapter. But that's not what saves us. He's setting a foundation of obedience that starts with, I need God. Nothing I can do can get me to God. And he's going to go on from there. Verse 6a, though, will you not declare it? This is something that's going to come up at the end of the chapter as well. He said, I did this for you, and you don't even acknowledge it. You don't even acknowledge it. It's it's the, the child that is ungrateful for everything mom and dad have done. And we are so many times that way with God. We can't earn our salvation. Nothing we can do. We don't deserve it. We can't earn it. Then we get to 6b through 8. And the the notes, the, the point C there is God hints at the Messiah. So He's hinting at the big picture even though they are still in sin. You have heard. Now see all this. And will you not declare it? That's the first part of 6. And then He moves on. From this time forth, I announce to you new things hidden things that you have not known. They are created now, not long ago. Before today, you have never heard of them, lest you should say, ha, I knew that. Or or, as it says in the word, behold, I knew them. And he's saying, okay, I've I've now given you salvation from Babylon. But there's more coming. I'm just now telling you my plans for ultimate salvation, ultimate redemption. Now he's not saying he just came up with them now. But he's saying that he's just revealing them now to his people. And one of the reasons, he says, is their, their sense of self, sense of taking credit. I knew that. Again, they sound like little kids. And they sound like us. Verse 8, you have never heard, you have never known. From of old your ear has not been opened, for I knew that you would surely deal treacherously and that from before birth you were called a rebel. And he's saying, you don't understand what I'm doing. I knew you you were a sinner. I knew you were going to sin. I've seen you sin. But I'm still doing something. This reminds me of Romans 5.8, that God demonstrates his love for us in that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. And he's reminding us 
again, this salvation is all God's idea. He says, you've never heard, you've never known from old, your ear has not been opened. Basically, he's saying you don't get it. The the plan of salvation is foolishness to you on your own. You can't understand it. This is 1 Corinthians 1. That the way of the Spirit is foolishness until the Spirit opens our eyes. And unless the Spirit is drawing us and pursuing us and opening our eyes to the truth of the gospel, it's foolish. It sounds silly. I talk to people sometimes and and they're like, well, I I don't understand. I, I just have to believe in Jesus Christ? No, what do I have to do? No, you just believe in Jesus Christ. He died for you. He did all the work. No, no, I got to do something. It's foolishness, but it's beautiful because it, it puts all of the work in God's hands. When he talks about this new thing, and he's going to get there in the second half of the chapter, again, what is he talking about? There's all, all kinds of debate. I think we see it in Isaiah 42.9, a passage that Pastor Andrew taught on a few weeks ago. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. And that you might say, well, that verse just sounds like what you just read. Keep in mind in Isaiah 42, this is all about the servant that is coming. It's all about the servant that's coming. And he intentionally uses the same language to say, I'm talking about the servant that's coming, the Messiah. For us, looking back, he's saying, Jesus is coming. Jesus changes everything. I'm giving you hints so so you can know that I'm working and declare my glory. This chapter also is going to transition into the chapters 49 on, which are all about the servant. So he's talking about Jesus here, the Messiah. See, God hints at the Messiah even though they're still in sin. For us, we can't even understand salvation on our own. We don't get it without the Holy Spirit. We default to sin. But God still saves. And so then we come to 9 through 11, just beautiful verses here. And, and he's already said, you don't deserve salvation. You can't, under, you can't earn salvation. You don't even get salvation. And he's not putting them down because he's coming to say, but God does. And it's about his glory. In verse 9, for my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. And that verse should send chills up our our spine and make us shout for joy at the same time. And and let me explain why. And and letter D there is, yet He still redeems us because of His glory. So A, B, and C are setting up, we don't get it, we don't deserve it, we can't earn it. And D is the wah moment, yet He still redeems us because of His glory. His redemption and discipline are all to show His glory. And what I mean by it should send chills up our spine and make us shout for joy at the same time. There's two parts of God's glory in these two verses. One is that His glory saves us and brings us miserable wretches. Yeah, yeah, you're a wretch. So am I. Miserable wretches into the kingdom of God and puts Jesus' righteousness on us. That's the glory of He saved the unsavable. 
But then also in these verses is the concept that if we are misrepresenting His glory, He will discipline. If we are defaming His glory, He will discipline. And so you have joy and chills and fear all at the same time. And you see that in 9. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. This is why I didn't wipe you out, he said. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you that I may not cut you off. And this is the joy of saying, I'm saving you. Even if you don't deserve it, I'm saving you. Yes, I know you're still battling idolatry. I know you're still battling sin. I know you're questioning coming home and doing the right thing, but I'm still going to save you for my glory. Verse 10 talks a little bit about the discipline. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I was reading how they refined silver at the time and they would take these hardened stone containers or bowls and superheat them and they'd put the silver in. And as the silver heated up, the bowls, the the structure of the bowls would actually absorb many of the impurities. They would disappear into nothingness. And so when he says not as silver, he's referring to I didn't wipe you out completely. Instead, I'm just refining you through the affliction, through the discipline. I'm making you more Christ-like. And then verse 11, for my own sake, for my own sake I do it. It's not about us. It's about God showing that He is almighty and righteous and holy and loving and merciful and shows grace. And we are simply a picture frame that shows all those things. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. And that comes back to the chills. Are we giving glory to God? Or are we directing people to self? At the end of the week, when people talk to us, do they know that we're a follower of Jesus or do they know all about our accomplishments and what we're trying to do? See, that that sort of gets down to who are we giving glory to. When something happens and, and, and we see God's hand, do we bother to say anything? Who do we give glory to? Another aspect of this, when I think of that God to His glory saves us and takes sinners and somehow plucks us out and makes us His children and we don't earn it, and we have no merit in the process, that's actually really comforting. Because if we have to earn our salvation, then we can lose it just as easily. If we have to earn our salvation, we can never be sure we're there. Our failures now are tied to our eternal destiny. But what this means is, I did nothing except follow Christ And His boundless love and grace and mercy is poured on me. Oh, praise God. I don't want the weight of having to earn my salvation. I I, I don't want to bear that. Rather, I'd love to obey God because of His salvation. Because of His boundless love for me. Think about that. 
he knew every sin that you've committed. He knows every sin you will commit. He knows the worst part of you and said, I still want you as my child. And I will change you. Ah, that's beautiful. And that should cause us to sing for praise and to declare His glory. If you remember when we were going through the attributes of God, we talked about glory. And and two different parts of glory is is His inherent glory. God is all glory. That's the sum of His attributes. That's never lacking. But then you have His reputation glory, which is what we give Him as we declare His praises, as we tell the world who He is. And when it's talking about His glory here and His glory being profaned, that's His reputation glory. I saved you for my glory. Declare it. Tell people. Be my children. In Daniel chapter 9, verse 18, Oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not. For your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. And this was written by Daniel, sitting in Babylon, praying that God would deliver them someday. And it's about God's glory, His name, for His sake. Village, our God's in the business of taking stinking piles of garbage and turning them into beautiful treasures. And you can go away today and you can say, Pastor called me a stinking pile of garbage. Or you could go away saying, Pastor said, God turned me into a beautiful treasure. And when we see the distinction, we magnify God's glory. So we get to the second half of chapter 48 where God wants us to respond. And it's the question, how does God want us to respond? He wants us to listen and do. Listen and do for His glory. Verses 12 through 15. And again, look for all the words that have to do with listening. Verse 12. Listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, whom I called. I am He. I am the first and I am the last. My hand laid the foundation of the earth. My right hand spread out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand forth together. Assemble all of you and listen. Who among them has declared these things? The Lord loves him. He shall perform his purpose on Babylon and his arm shall be against the Chaldeans. I, even I, have spoken and called him. I have brought him and he will prosper in his way. And here as God is starting his, his now final argument of trying to say, listen and do, follow what I'm saying, the first thing he says, the first reason for listening he says is God wants his people to listen and do because of who he is. Because of who he is. Not because of what we can get. Not because of how I think I'm going to benefit, but because of who he is. And he gives two reasons here. 12 and 13, he's talking about that God is the creator of the universe. If you want a reason to listen to me, he says, I created everything. I built it all. I might know how it all works. Listen to me. 
And just think of those verses. I am the first. I am the last. I was before all things, he's saying. And I will be here at the end of all things. My hand laid the foundation of the earth. I created this. And my right hand spread out the heavens. Think about just that for a moment. Do we realize how vast the universe is? Yeah, I spread it out, he said. At Johns Hopkins, a physicist was trying to to talk about space travel between stars. So you look in the sky and you see a few stars, right? They're, they're, especially if you get out of the city, it's just amazing. Woo, it's just full of stars. And this physicist was saying, just if you, if you could travel between one and the other, he said, even if it were pa- possible to travel at warp speed, it would kill everyone on board. Warp speed being the speed of light. It would kill everyone on board. In a study, he determined that the crew would receive 10,000 sieverts of radiation per second. Go home with that knowledge. A fatal dose for humans is six. So his conclusion, getting between stars is kind of impossible based on what we know right now, he says. Impossible for us to travel. God spreads them all out with his hand. That is how much greater God is than us. Listen to me, O Jacob. O Israel, O village, I am the first, I am the last. I am. My hand laid the foundation of the earth, my right hand spread out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand together. 14 and 15, the second reason of who he is, of why we should trust him, why we should listen to him, is he's saying, I predicted this and I guarantee it will happen. I am Lord of history. I am sovereign over all things. I will perform my purposes. And you see that in those verses. Assemble all of you and listen. Who among you has declared these things? Who, who's told you ahead of time what's going to happen and then done it? Yahweh loves him. And this is re- he gets really specific here. Remember their issue with Cyrus? Cyrus, pagan king. And God says things like, the loved and my shepherd and my savior. He does it again here. And he's talking about Cyrus. The Lord loves him. He shall perform his purpose on Babylon. His arm shall be against the Chaldeans. God is saying, trust me, I know what I'm doing. I am directing him. He is acting as my servant now. I, even I, have spoken and called him. I have brought him and he will prosper on his way. And God is saying, you may not like him, You may not understand what I'm doing. It may tick you off. But I'm still God. I'm still going to do what my plan will accomplish. And so God says, listen to me because I'm creator of all things and I'm sovereign over all things. And then he goes on to, to describe to them, hear this. God is working His ultimate plan in every situation. Hear this. God is working His ultimate plan in every situation. In 16 and 17, He now talks about what is coming. Draw near to Me. Hear this. From the beginning, I have not spoken in secret. From the time it came to be, I have been there. And now the Lord God has sent Me. Or or Adonai Yahweh, the Lord Yahweh has sent Me and His Spirit. Now, we should just stop right there because the wording actually changes here. Who's speaking 
changes. And this is just a, a really cool little Easter egg. You know, you, you go to the DVD features and you can see all the Easter eggs that are in the movies. This is an Easter egg of what's coming. Draw near to me, hear this. From the beginning, I have not spoken a secret. From the time it came to be, I have been there. And now the Lord God has sent me in His Spirit. Who's speaking? It's not Cyrus. It's not Isaiah at this point. These are words that were used of the servant, of the Messiah. This is Jesus speaking. Now we think, oh, Jesus came at Christmas. No, Jesus has always been part of the Trinity. He took on flesh at Christmas. He didn't come to be at Christmas. And he's saying, I've been, I've been behind this the whole time. Every circumstance, everything, I've been there. Draw near to me, hear this. From the beginning, I have not spoken in secret. From the time it came to be, I have been there. And now the Lord Yahweh has sent me. And that's wording that we know was used only of the servant. And his spirit. Again, we saw that in chapter 42. And so in the middle of his discussion of I'm saving you from Babylon, suddenly Jesus pulls back the curtain and says, I've been part of this the whole time. And I'm doing something in your future that's going to blow you away for my glory. And in verse 17, you see words that that illustrate that. Thus says Yahweh, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am Yahweh, your God, who teaches you to profit, who leads you in the way you should go. And again, every time you see Lord in all caps there, that's a reference to Yahweh, his personal covenant name. And he gets real personal with Israel here. He says, I know you don't understand about Cyrus, but I'm working. Trust me, I've created all things. I'm over all things. I am your covenant God. I am your redeemer. I'm here to save I am the Holy One of Israel. I am Yahweh your God who teaches you to profit, who leads you in the way you should go. And he's reminding them, I'm working my ultimate plan in every situation. Jesus is saying, any hardship you've been through, any struggle, I was there with you. And we know he is now. At the end, God says, I was using these things to teach you, to lead you. We may get into situations that we're like, I don't even know how God's working. There is nothing good that can come from this. And that is a lie from Satan to keep you from seeing the glory of God. Because what we're promised throughout Scripture is that God takes every situation and is working it for His purposes. that struggle you're going through, the dark night of the soul that you don't see an end to, God is hoping to teach you through that. He's hoping to instruct you, to guide you in the way. So the way, that way at the end you can give Him glory. It's just a beautiful Easter egg. <laughs> reminding us of what's coming. Reminding them of what's coming. We have the benefit of looking back on history. So we already know what Jesus did. And we know about the cross. And we know about the empty tomb. And we know that death has been defeated and sin has been paid for. They're still looking forward to that. And this gives hope. 
next few verses, 18 and 19, Isaiah reminds them we lose out on so much when we don't listen. We lose out on so much when we don't listen. Moms, dads, have you ever, have you ever uttered the phrase, if you had listened to me? Yeah, yeah. And it, and it really instructs, no, hopefully they get it after a while, but it's true. If you had listened to me, you, you wouldn't have jumped out of the tree on the trampoline and over the road tracks and died or broken your tooth or whatever. If you had listened to me, you wouldn't have done this. And, and on and on and on. So here are these verses, 18 to 19. Oh, that you had paid attention to my commandments. Then your peace would have been like a river, your righteousness like waves of the sea, Your offspring would have been like the sand, your descendants like its grains. Their name would have never, would never be cut off or destroyed from before me. And he's saying, oh, if you had listened to me, what could have been peace or shalom, a a, a way of seeing God's blessings throughout our whole life, his peace, his contentment on life. He's telling him your righteousness would have been like waves of the sea that are always coming and, and just amazing. Your offspring, and this refers to the covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, your offspring would have been like sand and your descendants like its grains. It, it, it could have been better if you had listened to me. And that could be where he ends. If you had listened to me, but you didn't, so it's over for you. But that doesn't show God's glory. And the, the, whole, the whole chapter comes together. Because where he goes from there is in verse 20. He says, but I saved you. But I saved you. If you had listened to me, yes, we, we lose out on things when we don't listen. But now's another chance. Now's another chance to listen. You think you like it in Babylon? I'm telling you to go. And so in verse 20, go out from Babylon, flee from Chaldea. Declare with this with a shout of joy. Proclaim it, which they didn't do before because they didn't listen and do. Proclaim it. Send it out to the end of the earth. Say, the Lord has redeemed His servant Jacob. They did not thirst when He led them through the deserts. He made water flow for them from the rock. He split the rock and water gushed out. References to the Exodus. To another time God saved them. And that they should have been declaring His praises because of that. And so in in these two verses, he says, listen, obey, give glory to God. There's still hope. I'm still working to my glory. And then he gives one last verse, a warning, but also a setup for our need for Christ. There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. This is the result of rejecting God. Listen, hear, and do, and proclaim. But if you don't, there's still consequences. And this is the, the, the culminating passage of these nine, verse, nine chapters because God is saying, obey, go back, tell everyone what I've done. Tell everyone that I used a pagan king, Cyrus, and he sent you with money and stuff and blessing, and he's making you do what I said. Tell people how amazing I am. And we know from Ezra that a few did, but many didn't. Many were content to stay. 
What do we do with a chapter like this? First thing we need to marvel in God's glory that He saved you and I. Remember the first half of the chapter. Don't go away thinking pile of garbage. Go away thinking God's incredible redemption to a priceless treasure. But then let that cause us to proclaim His glory, to listen and do and proclaim. Two questions I want to leave you with. And then we're going to celebrate the the Easter egg we saw, the coming Messiah, the ultimate salvation. Where is God waiting for you to obey? Where is God waiting for you to obey? It's going to be different for every one of us. But in this case, he's waiting for Israel. He's he's put everything in place. Come home, proclaim my glory. I've given you the best testimony you will ever have. What are you going to do with it? Where is God waiting for you to obey? Is it a step you need to take? Is it someone you need to minister to? Is it a neighbor that doesn't know of God's great love that needs to know? The second one ties into that second question. What in your life tells God's story? This week, what in your life is going to proclaim his glory? Your words, your actions, what you choose to do, or will we be proclaiming our own glory? So I challenge you, find something this week. Find some way to let your life tell God's story. He doesn't waste any circumstances. He doesn't waste any moments. He's at work. He's rescued us. He's still working in every situation. So who are you going to tell? That's the challenge.